right. After Shocks Tremors, we are back with another discussion episode today, and we've got a great one today, folks, that all, all of you early Thresh Middle fans are going to definitely love this one. We're going to go behind the scenes and do some studio talk with one of the most iconic producers in metal history. He's, of course, most well-known for being behind the glass for one of metal's all-time classic records, Megadeth's Peace Sells, who, but who's buying? We've got the legendary Randy Burns with us today. Randy, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak with us. How are you, man? I'm good. I'm good. Nice to be here. Yeah, great, man. Well, thanks. Well, yeah, it's it's you know it's quite uh, the honor to get to to chat with you. Uh, you know, just to give our listeners a brief overview of your career and what records and bands you've worked with. For ones that don't know or aren't familiar with your resume, obviously, P Cells was your you know your obviously your crown achievement that really made you one of the most so out go-to guys for many crossover thresh and death metal bands during the mid to late 80s. But you've also worked on numerous you know, genre-defining records from the debut self-titled, excuse me, Suicidal Tendencies record to Death Screen Bloody Gore, Possessed Seven Churches, records from Dark Angel, Nuclear Soul, Crumb Suckers. I mean, it's just a behemoth of a resume you got, man. And, um, you know, what's so unique about your career, Randy? You know, as I was doing my my due diligence here to prepare for this interview is that, you know, as a studio guy, unless, unlike most studio professionals who, you know, earn their chops in the studio at a gradual pace, that was something that you never had to experience. You were hitting home runs from day one, you know, from the minute you dipped your toe into the music business waters, you were making these legendary records right out of the gate. So, um, yeah, I guess my first question is, I mean, what was it when you, when you were, you know, selecting, these artists to work with. Cause one of the things about you is, you know, um, you've got such a high percentage of classic records with all, you know, with, with basically the amount of records you've produced, you know, it's not like the, you know, you're not like a typical producer who, you know, the law of averages, you know, you could obviously hit some home runs here and there. I mean, pretty much most of the records you did were just all home runs. So my first question is what was it that drew you to those specific bands, you know, and records when you decided what to work on and who to work with when, back in the eighties there. Well, actually it was more the other way around that. Um, uh, I, I did a lot of work with combat records and there was mm -hmm. a guy there named Steve Sinclair okay. and Steve Sinclair was doing the A and R for combat. And um, uh, I did a few records for him and I just became his go-to guy. And almost all those records that you just mentioned came through, came through Steve at combat. Wow. Okay. Okay. Um, there was another guy, Ron Gowdy at uh, Enigma Records. And then um, at some point, well, I guess after P Cells, then a lot of the bands so sought me out. So I had a management company that kind of filtered things. And it was, mm -hmm. here's, you know, here's a bunch of bands. They all want to be produced. Which one do you want to work with? And, uh, you know, I would pick them. Some of them were obvious, like Creator. You know, it just makes sense sure. that, mm -hmm. that they were already uh, established bands. Mm -hmm. But uh, on the beginning, that that big run in the middle there with you know Possessed and uh, Death and Megadeth and uh, even Nuclear Assault, right? All mm -hmm. that stuff came through Steve Sinclair at Combat. Wow, very cool. Well, well go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. That that's it. Okay. Okay. Well, I was going to say, I just want to, let's, let's start with, you know, your career really, as you started out as a youngster in the uh, LA punk scene. I mean, the first record you worked on was a punk compilation called hell comes to your house. Uh, now, you know, compilation albums are a dime a dozen, but you wound up working on, on this one. I read that it cost just over $500 to make. And, and it featured a, a song from a little Southern California band called social distortion. So, I mean, even the comp you worked on featured one of the biggest punk bands in history. I mean, do you, do you chalk a lot of your success up to simply, you know, it just basically it's because of, you know, obviously, like you said, Steve, you know, obviously fed you a lot of these bands, but was it simply, especially in the early days, you know, with, with, with that record, of course, later on when you worked with Suicidal Tendencies on their self-titled debut, was a lot of it just being really at the right place at the right time? Or do you think it had to do with, you know, just, I mean, what was it that really, how were you able to, especially right off the bat, be able to work with these iconic bands, you know, that want to become, especially in the punk rock scene, some of the biggest punk rock bands in history? Uh, yeah, it was kind of being in the right place at the right time. I think I was really, you know, uh, extremely fortunate to sort of uh, get a ride on two scenes. One was the, the L.A. punk scene, you know, mm -hmm. where I did the Hell Comes to Your House, and then uh, that got me the gig with Lisa Fancher 
at Frontier to do suicidal. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so I sort of caught a ride there. I have, you know, I was just right there when everything was happening. And then, and then uh, uh, the beginning of the thrash metal scene with, with Megadeth and all those other bands. So um, yeah, there really is an element of just being in the right place at the right time. Cool. And, and uh, but of course, you know, um, there was there was a guy I worked with a lot in Hollywood uh, called the Drum Doctor. He was a drum tech who rented drums, and I used him a lot for my stuff. And 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 he used to say that 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 in Hollywood the same guys were showing up all the time to do the work. Mm -hmm. So you know, I was I was I was there. I did a whole lot of bands that weren't hit records. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, those the, those are the exception. So. Uh, you know, you have to be there and you have to be ready when the, when the time comes. Sure. Absolutely. Well, you know, it seems like most of the iconic producers in the world of punk and metal really started exactly like you did. I mean, they had no real, uh, from what I read, I remember it said that you really had no aspirations of really becoming a studio guy at the time. I mean, and like a lot of these other producers, they were basically musicians who simply, you know, were recording their friends' bands in their basement or garage, you know, just a good old DIY punk rock approach to recording. And that's how it started for a lot of the engineers and producers at that time, especially in the eighties day when working on punk and metal records. I mean, at what point did you realize that you were, what you were doing was more than just a little, you know, side thing where you were helping your fellow musician friends and you were actually, you know, really good at this and could make it a career. I mean, and did you, did you even want it, want it to be a career being that you, you know, I know later on temporarily removed yourself from the industry after you did the uh, seven churches possess record. <clears throat> I was, um, I was playing club bands in Orange County, playing okay. uh, what we call Top Forty. And, you know, um, we did. We had two girls in our club band, and we did Patty Benatar and Pretenders and okay. Fleetwood Mac, and then on the heavier side, ACDC and Journey, things like that. Okay. Um, mm. And um, uh, at the same time, I was doing that. Uh, I put together an eight-track studio in my garage at my uh my parents place in long beach and uh started recording and then somebody heard about that and a punk band came over and and um i recorded a punk band there and they told their friends and and that's really how i got started in the recording thing but what 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 got me into it seriously was just trying to get out of uh playing clubs for a living and to uh, uh do the recording thing for a living so uh, uh my girlfriend and I and my partner, uh, Linda Schultz, we opened up this little eight track studio in uh, La Brea in Orange County. Okay. <clears throat> and um, that's where I did Hell Comes to Your House. Oh. And um, while I was doing that, uh, Linda and I were also had an original band. And again, sort of in that uh, somewhere between Fleetwood Mac and Hart, you know, kind of poppy mm -hmm. rock stuff of the early late 70s early 80s variety mm -hmm. um we got signed to a management deal and basically they signed us to a record deal and then um, they were trying to sell that record deal to to a major label and um the thing went south uh the drummer for the band was mark jubay who quit our band and joined survivor okay and, and mm -hmm. It became really messy. The management company wanted me to sue Mark for uh, breach of contract. Oh, jeez! <laughs> and and I wouldn't do it. So, uh, so they 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 fired me as well. And uh, and and I literally was in an office in Hollywood with this Hollywood entertainment lawyer and the management company and telling me that uh, I would never work in this town again, blah, blah, blah. So, <laughs> I was really, anyway, so I was kind of getting long winded, but uh, it was, I, I gave up on the record company artist thing at that point, decided to just move to Hollywood and work in the recording industry for a while. I just mm -hmm. was burnt out on, on uh, the whole trying to get a record company deal. Sure. What so, was that? Was that a difficult decision, Randy? Because I know you musicians, you get that bug and you always sort of have that bug. Um, I don't know. I was a little bit, I was a little bit tired and jaded from, um, 
working in clubs for a long time. That okay. gets to be a real drag after a while. I don't know how many musicians you've talked to about that. Um, sure. And then, like I said, the original band thing didn't, you know, with the management company was real. Um, I don't know it was just disturbing and irritating right. and, 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 mm -hmm. and uh, made me cynical. So uh, I just wanted to get away from it for a while, honestly. And once I got into Hollywood and got into working in the studio, um, uh, I really liked it. And I just stayed there and things just sort of happened. Sure. You know, I got busy and uh, it didn't take long before I was producing records. So sure. Well, you, you've obviously done amazing things with that decision. So it was obviously the right decision to make. Now, now I want to pull the curtain back a little bit on production and specifically on yours, because the one thing that jumps out to me about when you look at your catalog, especially that that 80s run, I guess we'll call it 80s to mid 90s ish run. You did a lot of records that don't sound a lot alike, which is which to me is a is an absolute testament to you. You know, they, they really have different production qualities from record to record that sort of match the bands, you know, which I guess is the, is the goal. Right. But for, for you, when you go into a record, no matter who it is, do you have a sound in mind based off of the, the band you're working with and the demos, or do you have a predetermined sound of what you want to capture and bring that to the band? Does that make sense? Um. I want to, I, I, I consider my style to be very documentary. Um, okay. mm -hmm. I, I'm, I, I think that the band is the best authority on how they should sound. And that my job is to translate their vision of what they want to sound like into reality. So, um, no, I don't go in with a, with a predetermined, like this is the sound I'm going for. I go in and try to get the best, that I can out of that particular band. So um, I used to tell bands that um, if they use me, uh, their record would sound exactly like them, only a thousand times better than they ever thought possible. <laughs> nice. that, that, was, that was the goal, you know. Um, sure. In my uh, management company times, um, I had a uh, an experience where they, you know, I recorded the demos for my band. And okay. that's how I got the management deal. Right. And mm -hmm. so the management company said, well, you need to have some 24 track demos. We're going to hire a producer and send you in the studio to make some demos. And they did. And, and I really, really hated them. I really didn't like them. It, it, they missed something, right. you know, the they went in there and I, I, I listen to it now and I see exactly what they were trying to do, you know? And, um, but it wasn't the sound of my band. It was a different sound. And um, I was really disappointed and angry and frustrated with that when I was, you know, when I was the artist and the producer did something else, right? Mm, they, right. they got the sound that they thought we needed to have and not the mm -hmm. one that I wanted. So uh, that really stuck with me. And so when I went into the studio with, with original bands, I was really, really um, focused on getting the sound that that they wanted and okay. trying to understand what that was and translate things the best I could. So. No doubt. Is it is it helpful or a hindrance as, as the producer to have the other band guys that are not working, that are you know kind of on the couch in the studio? And what I mean specifically is obviously you've worked with having the musicians with you. But sometimes, you know, I, I've I've sat in very with local bands mostly, so it's a different environment, mm -hmm. obviously. But I've sat in, and whoever's not working tends to be distracting, you know, whether it's whether it's their horse playing around or they're doing whatever or they're noodling around on their guitar while the while you're trying to do drum tracks or whatever. For you, did you keep everybody out, or were you happy to have them in there if they were paying attention, trying to give you? some assistance with what they were trying to capture or what um it just depends um i think vocals uh you know as a producer uh one of the one of the important parts of your job is to decide when it's a take okay so you're in there and you're recording and you're listening to them and they're performing 
And, and, and you really have two jobs as a producer. One is, is to get the good performance. And then two is to know when that's it. That's the one that's the take stop now. And we're right. going to move on. So, um, I think particularly with, um, uh, with vocals, a lot of times I would, I would have everybody leave so that the vocalist, it was just me and the vocalist and an engineer or just me and the vocalist in the studio. Okay. And, um, but other times, um, you know, the right atmosphere might be more of a party atmosphere and I'd have, you know, the band in there drinking beer and, and, and cheering the guy on. Right. Sure. You know, and uh, have it, you know, get a, a lot of um, positive feedback from them, you know, when when the, when the guy did something good. So um, it just depends on the situation. Okay. Uh, but that is part of your job is to control that. Sure. What, and and the goal is to get the good performance. You know, how do you get the performer in the right space and the right frame of mind to give the best performance, and then knowing when you got it. Right. Those are, your, those are your two main jobs. Sure. Well, you 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 seemingly were an expert at controlling it just because when you look at the list of bands that you worked with, all of them at the same time that they were at their creative peak were also at their partying peak. You know, Megadeth <laughs> certainly was, Nuclear yeah. Salt certainly was. Yeah. I mean, all these bands were at their partying peak. Was it difficult to navigate their excesses, you know, or, or control it to, like you said, that sometimes you'd make it a party atmosphere. Was it hard to get them not to be in a party atmosphere and, and actually come ready to work? Uh, you know, all of these bands were really serious and this was their big shot. You know, uh, it was all, it was almost always the first album with a label and, and the label was paying for it. And they were very, very serious about what they were doing. So they weren't goofing off or mucking around in the studio. They were they were there to get the record done. And, and so I was very serious about staying focused on getting the work done. And um, um, no, no, it, it's not really a problem. It's not really, a, it wasn't really an issue. Um, I, I can't remember when... Um, you know, I, I can remember no situations where it's like, well, we can't do any more recording because so-and-so's drunk or whatever, something like that. I mean, it just didn't happen. Mm -hmm. uh, I also think a lot of people have the misconception that, you know, if people are are doing drugs that they're not able to perform. Um, mm -hmm. true. Those those two things are, you know, that's not really true. Some people perform really well when they're, when they're high. So it just, it just depends, uh, you know. So mm -hmm. anyway, it wasn't it, people doing drugs and drinking was wasn't really a, a hindrance to making the record. Oh, very interesting. Very cool. Well, let's really let's get to you know just talking about some of the the obviously some of the your history here. I mean, right around the time that you were working on the suicidal uh, tendencies debut was really when punk and metal were, you know, they were starting to slowly cross pollinate with each other. I mean, institutionalized was an alternative radio hit. I mean, and what separated, I think that song, uh, especially that album too, from the other punk and hardcore, you know, bands at the time was the lead guitar. They had this, you know, immensely lead, uh, excuse me, immensely talented lead guitarist, Rocky George. And that was just something that really went against that whole punk rock ethos musically was, you know, they didn't believe in lead guitars, punk rock. And I mean, in that level of musicianship and punk, it just wasn't, like I said, it just wasn't happening at the time. And of course, the coalescing of punk and metal eventually led to the crossover, you know, uh, movement, which you as a producer helped establish greatly as a, a producer and engineer, you know, in, in general, I know you, you know, you were an engineer on that record, but just a producer in general, I mean, how were you able to tap into or convince a lot of those punk centric bands at the time to adapt, you know, a more metallic sound when there was such, you know, consternation between both the punk and metal scenes, because I mean, both scenes, especially, especially I know, you know, uh, in New York and the East Coast, both scenes, they were like oil and water. I mean, they hated each other, you know. So as a producer, did you have to twist any arms and do a lot of convincing for a lot of these bands to adapt to a more integrated sound of combining both of those subgenres together at the time? No, no, they did really? it themselves. Oh, Suicide wow. Identity is the perfect example. Um, they were, when they came into the studio, visually... You had three guys with bandanas that looked like they were in gangs. 
And then you had this other guy with a Les Paul and a Marshall and, you know, hair down to here. Right. Right. And literally looked like they were from two different worlds and they were in the same band. And, but that's what the band was. It was the, it was the, the merging of those, the fusion of those two different things. And they did it. It was, you know, it wasn't, wasn't me guiding them. You know, mm -hmm. I just uh, did a good job of, of putting it on tape. Yeah. No, sure did, man. Well, I mean, yeah. well, well, the one thing you would know, I mean, obviously just as much as anybody, is really the difference, too, between the two coasts where the crossover sound was emanating from, from both L.A. and New York. I mean, from from my just knowledge, from what I've, you know, what I've learned is, you know, obviously with the New York crossover scene, that really didn't come into fruition really until S.O.D. came out with Speak English or Die. That was one of the big records that helped kickstart that back there, which helped bridge that gap, obviously, with both subgenres. But it did take some time to get to that point but on the west coast you really had the venice scene obviously was suicidal and no mercy excel uh later on with uncle slam i mean when did you start to notice in the studio and working with these bands that these two styles were indeed starting to become you know aligned with each other in a natural sense without any you know label input or any influences that came from the business perspective because i mean correct me if i'm wrong i'm sure combat eventually at the time and just independent labels in general were probably welcoming or wanting more of that metal and punk to come together in order to really reach a broader you know audience which of course means more record sales and ticket sales and return on their investment well i think suicidal was you know really at the beginning uh, of of this coming together the two different styles mm -hmm. and by the time you get and then you know excel was probably you know 90% rock with, with, you know, 10% of the punk mm -hmm. and then uncle slam. They're just, they're just a thrash band. I mean, you know, in, in my opinion, they were, they were fully there into the, into the metal world. So mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Again, I, I took each band as they came and, and tried to do it, what that band was, uh, was trying to accomplish. And um, uh, I really, you know, never as a producer went into the studio to try to push a band in one direction or another or tell them what to be. Uh, I was always trying to look for, you know, what is it you guys are doing that's different? And let's, mm -hmm. let's put the spotlight on that and, and let's make this record, you know, uh, mm -hmm. make this record unique. So, sure. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and of course they were very different. The uncle slams and Excel, would be really, really, really different than than Ludacris and the Crumb Suckers. You know, those were, those were, oh yeah, were really, really different guys too. You know, mm -hmm. sure. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no, the New York New York guys are really uh, uh, very personable and sure. really uh, interesting, fun to be around. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the other guys weren't, but I mean, it was a whole different thing. I wasn't, I wasn't used to the New York thing. So, Got sure, it. no, totally. Well, I mean, the thing too, you know. Uh, Randy, that really impresses me, you know, about your career is that is obviously that you worked on these extreme death metal classics too, like death and possessed, you know, records. And and this that genre was obviously at the time really brand spanking new. And and although although both bands had legendary, you know, guitarists and both Chuck and Larry Lalonde, as good as these guys were at the time at their craft, I'd have to venture a guess that they were also probably not as obviously precise as they would become later on. I mean, be also that you're you know from a punk rock background where, you know, precision is, like I said, it's, it's pretty negative in the, in the punk world. You know, missing notes and playing off key, that sort of adds to the character of the music of punk. But the same, you know, really can't be said with metal. It's, you know, it's always, with metal, it's always been, this, you know, the exact opposite, where precision and perfection is like the ultimate goal with, with guitar players, you know, and it's heralded, you know, unlike punk rock. So with those two bands and guitarists, and, and just, I guess, in general, I mean, especially when it came to tracking the guitars, I mean, how much of an adjustment was it for you as, as an engineer and producer when it came to tracking the guitars from the punk bands to the more seasoned players in those extreme metal bands? I mean, was it more, say, difficult to work with the Chuck and Larrys because of their desire to be, you know, great at their craft and be legends as guitars? Or was it more frustrating and challenging working with the punk-related bands who weren't really seeking, they weren't seeking out to be, you know, guitar gods? Because as a producer, I mean, it's obviously... You know your job to challenge and get the best you can out of them even if it wasn't something that you know they weren't really desiring or, or seeking to do well um i would 
I recorded those bands differently and um, the punk bands would pretty much record live and then maybe we would overdub the vocals, okay, uh, okay. but we would do everything else live, you know, guitar, bass and drums would all be live with the vocals singing with them until mm -hmm. we got a good take where we had everybody. And there was no double tracking guitar parts on the punk stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, we were just looking for a good take and a good performance and trying to get a good sound. I tried to record the punk guys just like I would the metal guys. I mean, it didn't make any difference to me. You know, I was trying to get a high fidelity sound out of out of both of them, you know. Mm -hmm. But in, in terms of, of exactly how you recorded them, the, uh, you know, death and possessed, we would assemble things a little differently. We would go in and have everybody play and we were only looking to really keep the drums or maybe the drums and some of the bass, maybe go fix the bass. Uh, but the bass and the guitars, we would overdub in the control room playing to the good drum performance. Mm. And it was, it was building the tracks up uh, with a lot more overdubs and really working really, really hard to get the double track guitar um, that was that's a big part of it, um, it of getting a good sound is to have those guitar performances be really tight so um I, that, that would be the difference you know okay. no sure. double tracking on the punk stuff you do it all live um the the, the faster metal stuff you know, you have to go in and, and overdub the guitars and, and work through it a section at a time to get to get the really tight double track. First, you get the first track really tight with the drums. Mm -hmm. And then the second track, you get really tight with the first one. And that gives you that uh, that metal sound that makes sense. Sure. I, I, just to be clear on what, what you're saying there about the punk bands, when you say that you had them record live, do, to get a take do you mean that you that you had them keep playing it until you got one take with all of them at the same time or did you split the tracks and then piece together each until they all fit no we we wanted to get the whole thing except maybe wow. for the vocal we could go back and redo right. the vocals right. we go back and work through and overdub the vocals but nothing else usually maybe overdub a guitar or something like that some of the stuff but most of the stuff was really uh, not very produced um but the guitar bass drums we get we get all that live we get the okay. basic track live and i didn't double track i didn't dub, double track the guitars those guys were not they were not into that they didn't want it right they're not going right. to do that you know right capture the performance and and we're good you know no question well well randy i i gotta tell you up front i'm a failed drummer so i'm asking this question as an absolute failure of a drummer so but <laughs> you know you know i always always think as as somebody that's you know been watching music and wishing i could do it for 40 years or whatever i always think that recording wise the most important player is the drummer because he keeps he keeps everything kind of in time moving forward at the direction you want it to be is that the truth for you when when you bring a band in that that the better the drummer is, the better the session will be because the drummer keeps everything paced correctly. Um, <clears throat> to a great extent, yes. And and when I did the thrash metal bands, I would always do it the same way. I would set up all of the bands, but we'd focus on the drums. Um, I would, to do the drum tracks, I would go into the big studio, Music Grinder, the expensive studio, Right. And rent drums. I used to rent drums from a guy named the drum doctor I mentioned before. Right. And what he would do is, is he would bring in a kit that matched the kit of the drummer in the band. So if he had two toms and two floor toms and then two crashes here and a hat, he would bring in exactly the same number of drums and put them in exactly the same place and set them up. So when the drummer sat down, we'd use the drummer's pedals. And it would be exactly like the drummer's kit, except all the drums would be different. Oh, wow. <laughs> all the drums would be these really specialized hand beaded heads, you know, really beautiful drums that just sounded fantastic. So we would set up all the band. We'd have the bass and the guitars and everybody going and a singer 
sometimes sometimes with the thrash metal guys they don't they don't need to sing they just play it mm -hmm. they just play it they don't need the they don't need the vocals there but when you had um uh sometimes they did anyway we would set up and play through the songs and the performance i was looking for was just the drums so when we got a great drum performance then that would be the take on that and we'd move on to the next song to get the next drum okay. performance and we'd stay in the stu big studio for maybe two days maybe three days doing that and then go into a small studio that was much cheaper sure to record guitars and vocals because you can record guitars and vocals anywhere you know okay. they're going to sound the same whereas drums you need to have the room you need to have the really good microphones and i think you need to have really good drums you know so mm -hmm. um yeah drums are really really important and we would build it up there you start with the drums then you do the bass then you do the guitars then you do the vocals okay very cool man well, well, Randy, let, let's talk about the big one that everybody knows. Let's talk a little bit about peace cells. That's obviously it's the one everybody knows. It's the one people go back and forth between peace cells and rust in peace as Megadeth's mega moment, you know, which, which has to be a, a mark of pride for you, you know, because you guided them in exactly the right direction at the right time. For you personally, how do you look at that release? And, you know, because there was a lot of negative for you that came after it initially came out. So how do you look at it, you know, as, as far as how it came out when it was done, how it came out when Capital did the, what, Paul Laney remix or whoever did the mix? How, I mean, what, get, give us kind of an overview of that whole period. Cause it is a strange, strange story on, on one of the greatest albums ever. Well, I don't know if it's that strange of a story. Um, again, the, uh, I wasn't actually in Hollywood working when, when that record came up, um, I was taking a break from Hollywood. Um, I was living with my parents in Antelope Valley out in the desert. Okay. And, uh, Going, going to school and studying computer science. <clears throat> and uh, I was sort of sick of Hollywood and the music business. And <clears throat> Steve Sinclair called me and said, I have this band and you have to produce the record. Okay. You, know, you have to do it. And I'm like, well, all right, Steve, you know, you know okay, I'll, I'll listen to them. So I went down to listen to them in a rehearsal studio in downtown LA in this little, small little room. And... <clears throat> They sat down and they played, they played about eight songs in a row, um, no vocals, just, just a band. Okay. And I knew right then that it was a hit record and I, I quit school, um, wow. <laughs> went to apartment in Hollywood, took the gig and, and, and made the record. So, um, you know, for me, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was a, a, a point, you know, an inflection point in, in, in my career. So, uh, I, like I said, I was taking a break at the time. Sure. And, um, uh, it, it was just, again, it was being in the right place. You know, those guys just came off the road and they were absolutely on fire. Sure. Uh, there was making that record was really exciting because when we would, we'd send them out to do a take and, you know, uh, that Gar would deliver these just outrageous performances. And, and, you know, it was just, it was really exciting. How did you know, what was it that you heard that made you know it was a hit uh, worthy enough to change your whole life to make it? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I just heard the stuff and I immediately, I've never had that feeling. Uh, I, I never had that feeling again. Wow. The only time I've ever had that. I, I knew this was, this was the one I knew this one was, was special. And, um, but well, the songs were great and, sure. you know, it was, it was Gar and Chris Poland and, and, and Dave Ellison playing this stuff. Those guys were all and in Mustaine, they, they were just brilliant, you know, and mm -hmm. um, they were so tight off of the road and hearing that stuff live and just perform perfectly. It's just, 
you know, I could hear it. It was, it, this, this was something special, something different. And, and of course the album is the album stands on its own, you know, sure mm -hmm. it does. Well, what, what made you then, you know, once, once the success of that album hit, hit in, what, what made you then continue to stay in Hollywood and, and continue, you know, to, to now produce more records when, I mean, instead of saying, okay, I did this record, I hit my, my grand slam here. I'm going to go back to computer science, you know, major and in college and, leave Hollywood again. I mean, did you just get, did it re, I guess, reignite that spark, that fire to, to stick within the business again and continue to, yeah. you know, produce the record you did? Well, it's just, I had some success, you know, it mm. was, uh, it was a big deal. And, um, mm. um, I had a lot of offers to make records. And so I just started working the work just came and I just, you know, went from record to record then. Before that, you know, I don't, I didn't necessarily, uh, I wasn't working as steady as that. Okay. Um, and uh, there would be times where I'd go a month without doing a record or, or more than a month without doing a record. And so, no, I think it was just a success of it. It's, it's super satisfying and, and, and um, exciting and, and rewarding to be a part mm -hmm. of something like that. Sure. I mean, it was it was um, it was really an amazing experience to be in the studio with those guys. Um, so, it, you know, it it brought the magic back. I mean, it was it, it was amazing. Yeah, no, no absolutely. <laughs> no doubt. Well, I mean, I could, we could talk about that record all day long, but we I there's so much stuff you do. I, I want to get to a couple of the bands you worked with that really. And, and these are bands we've kind of mentioned already. The first being Crump Suckers. Uh, let's start with them. Who, in my opinion, I think may have been the most skilled musicians within that crossover scene. Um, I mean, t t and then to me, of course, they're the band that really made the absolute complete hard turn in their sound. Uh, no one, no one did that in that, in that crossover, you know, scene. I think than, than the Crumb Suckers did with "Beast on My Back" right after "Life of Dreams." Um, those those records are so different. If it wasn't for Chris Notaro's, you know, unique voice and vocal style. I don't think there's any way that people would know it's the same band. I mean, they went from this unique, you know, you know, classic sort of hardcore sound to now a progressive crossover, you know, one. I mean, which made obviously many, many hardcore purists among, you know, the band's earlier fan base were not very happy with the change in direction on that record, especially, you know, once I'm sure once they heard the intro to Breakout with that piano piece. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm, I, I mean, I'm going to guess. W w that part might have been placed in there purposely to sort of let the fans know, hey, get ready for something completely entire, you know, something entirely different because it sounds nothing like Life of Dreams. But but I'm also one of the very few who actually thinks that record, Beast on My Back, is is better than Life of Dreams. I think that record's phenomenal. But to a lot of the, hard, you know, purest hardcore fans and, and crossover fans, there was a lot of pushback and they didn't like it. So take us back to the studio during the recording process of, that record of beast to my back. I mean, what the band's mindset at the time, what was it? I mean, did you and the band foresee and expect, you know, that reaction from, you know, their fan base? I mean, did, did you have any part for instance in, in pushing them, I should say in that direction, or was that entirely on them and their decision to do so? Uh, it was entirely them. They, they oh. came to the studio with an idea of what they wanted to do and where they want to go. Mm -hmm. There was some discussion in the studio, but between them about, should we do this or that? You know, at certain points, making decisions about what what to do in a in a certain uh, situation, but mm -hmm. um, uh, no, they they it was all them. They again, I didn't mm -hmm. come. In, I came in and documented what it was they wanted to do. It was that was a pretty quick session too. I think we did the whole record in a week. Wow! Uh, in wow. in New York, Damn. and um, uh, it was just in record the stuff, get out. And that was the end of it. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that's like I said, that's a uh, I think a phenomenal record that you, that you were part of, absolutely. But well, the other band I want to talk about was um, it was Excel. You know, I, they were another band that I thought really had amazing potential, especially when the the jokes on you came out in '89. A very underrated album and band, obviously straight out of the Venice LA scene, as we said. Um, and that also featured a really a, a very underrated musician and guitarist, Adam Siegel. I mean, he did some amazing things on that record and just in general with that band. Of course, he wound up later, you know, playing with Infectious Grooves for during their prime years. Um, but I, I, to me, that band, I think, really could have been huge 
if they, I mean, and not to, to put him down or anything because he's an excellent frontman, but you know, Dan Clements, I think just, he was just, I think limited vocally. And I think if, if they had someone who had maybe some more range, that band could have really taken off. I just, I, I thought they had such a perfect blend of, you know, the, like, like you said, it was really a rock band with all these other, you know, thrash or hardcore elements. And then by the time the jokes on you came out, that was definitely had more of that groove, which was starting to become the big thing there in the late, you know, eighties, uh, right in the beginning, you know, early nineties there when you had bands like Pantera and prong, you know, taking over that, that groove metal scene. I mean, why do you think they were a band that, that just didn't make it bigger than they did in your opinion? I mean, do you, do you agree that maybe it was the vocal limits that prevented them to doing so? I mean, just, I mean, just, just give me your take on why you thought that that was a band that just didn't really take off like they probably should have. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that that was a really tough one. Like the music business is really terrible. Um, <laughs> you can, you can do yeah. everything right. You can do everything right and perform right. And, and really lay down something beautiful and, and have it not go anywhere. Um, mm. you know, so, uh, why that it didn't, it didn't go anywhere. You know, I, I really don't know. I really don't know. I do think it's an underrated band. I do think they were really, really good. I really enjoyed making those records. Those records were really fantastic to make. Really fun, interesting uh, people in that band. Uh, uh, so uh, very creative. And, um, and yeah, we had a great time. We had a great time making those records. Very cool. So um, uh, I certainly love the stuff and really like it still. So, but sure. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why. It's one of those things. Why it goes somewhere it doesn't. Sure, right. Sure. <laughs> Certainly. You know. Well, there, there. Just is talking about how some bands, you know, don't make it. One of the bands I worked with, uh, I worked with one day was Jet Boy. And oh, yeah. Guys yeah. Jet Boy, the hair band, right? Yeah. Right. Stomping right. down did, on the bricks. Yeah. I did their, I did their, uh, the demos, and we did twelve. 12 songs recorded 12 songs with the vocals and the guitar overdubs and um and mixed them in one night we started around noon one day and finished around eight or nine in the morning the next day so i don't know what are the 18 hours anyway right um those guys you know their career got messed up because their a and r guy was sleeping with the lead singer in the pandoras Jet oh, wow. Boy got signed by the same label as the Pandoras. I think it was Asylum. I'm not sure. It was a major label, right. and and their A and R guy got fired because he was sleeping with the lead singer from the band, and they just got hung out to dry for years. And it's like here's a band that does everything right. You know, they mm -hmm. put together the band, they write the songs, they play the clubs, they get yeah. the attention, they record some demos, they get a major label deal. And then that's it. Nothing happens after that, mm -hmm. you know? So, um, anyway. Yeah. No, it's uh, that is. evil. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> it, is. it is. Uh, Randy, another band that and probably the oddest that I see when I look at your, at your catalog that just jumps out at me just because it just doesn't fit anything else. Bang Tango. You know, I mean, so much of your stuff is heavy stuff. And then all of a sudden, Bang Tango comes in there. And not only do they come in there, but when you did Dancing on Dancing on Coals, that is such an, it's an odd Bang Tango record, too. You know, I mean, it, it definitely has way more funk than I think they had previously. They were, they were a little more hair metal-y on the, you know, the record before. Just seems like it was a leap away from all of your previous work. So what was what was the attraction to working with them? Well, like the Jet Boy, um, one of the things I was got at some point I was getting a little bit burnt out only doing extreme metal. Sure. You know, all the bands were starting to uh, the stuff that they were saying, here, here are the bands that you can produce. The management company would come to me with with demos, right? And mm -hmm. say, pick one of these and produce them, you know. Um, so I was looking to do stuff that was, was more like, you know, Guns N' Roses or Jet Boy or Bang Tango. So sure. they, the management company came up and said, Hey, you want to do this? Here's one you could do. And, uh, they, they, but they, that was a very strange record though. Uh, the <laughs> way, way we went about that. So, uh, it was, it was a live in the studio kind of thing. Okay. And, um, 
but no, I was just looking to to do other stuff, and uh, I was not successful at getting other gigs uh, outside of extreme metal. I had a jacket for doing, you know, I was the Megadeth guy, mm-hmm. and anybody that wasn't Megadeth didn't really want me to do them. So, right, was that disappointing <laughs> to you? Was was that disappointing to you that you? I mean. Yeah, it's it, it, it's weird to have something as successful as that also be a hindrance to your career, I guess. Well, yeah, but you gotta you gotta remember that most extreme metal bands aren't Megadeth. Yeah, <laughs> true, true, good point. Yeah, you know, Megadeth was was phenomenal, and uh, uh, most of the stuff they were bringing me was mediocre. You know, a lot of the stuff was fairly mediocre. There were exceptions, like uh, like um, a Creator, uh, sure. that were you know really fantastic bands. Uh, but um, uh, a lot of the stuff, you know, in the in 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 the late eighties was was starting to start sound the same. You know, it was like um, anyway. Yeah, uh, you listen to 10, 10 demos and, and you might get 10 bad ones, you know, right. <laughs> you might sure. get your hand in the bunch. So, <laughs> right. Definitely. Well, well, Randy, you know, obviously now 2022, we are, we're in the age of nostalgia. Now it's been long enough since that era where everything is on a list. Everything is, you know, nostalgic now. And when you see your records, a lot of your records referenced online in polls, all this stuff, it's always at the top of the very iconic lists. You know, you you look at a best thrash thing and two or three of your records always pop up. Best death metal type stuff and the death record, uh, Scream Bloody Gore is always near the top, if not the top. You know, the obviously Peace Cells is, what was that, Rolling Stones top five or something? you know some crazy high number like that and and certainly creator coma souls is one of those records that people love to death with all that said how does that make you feel as the guy that was kind of formulating that stuff now when you when you see it now do you look at it and like beat your chest like yeah that's me god damn it <laughs> or 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 do you, are you past it to the point now where it's like okay that was a time in my life but now we're here well, you know, I'm when I first started getting back into music a few years ago, um, I was really surprised at how important some of those records turned out to be. Okay. Because, you know, at the, at the time, I mean, I knew Megadeth was going to be a big record, but certainly Possessed, you know, oh, yeah. nobody, nobody thought that was going to be a big record. Nobody... Mm-hmm. Nobody made any noise about that when we first did that one. It took a long time. And um, Death was just another, you know, it was a good one, but it was just another thrash metal record that we did during that period. Um, uh, Or at least it seemed like, you know, it was, well, was grinding them out, you know. Right. um, Mm -hmm. No, I, I, I consider myself to be really, really fortunate to have been in the right place at the right time. And have gotten to work with all of those tremendous bands because it really is the bands that that are the greatness. Without without the band, I mean, producers are are, are nothing. You know, we don't we just, we just make it. You know, we just capture it. We don't we don't we don't make the make them great. So I was just very fortunate. Yeah, no doubt. And, um, um, yeah. Absolutely. You know, uh, just one more band you worked with quick. I got to bring up because they're so unique. Um, and you, you mentioned before is Ludacrist, uh, who eventually obviously became Scatterbrain, you know, shortly after that. And they were, you know, they were one of those bands. And it was such a unique time because that was they went with that, you know, the whole humorous approach rather than that serious side of things in in, in the crossover and metal scene. You know, obviously, as we said before, SOD was the first one, I think, to really bring that sort of goofiness and silliness uh, to, to the music that was normally very serious in nature in terms of its lyrics. And then you had Peter Steele from, you know, Carnivore did the same thing with, with that. And and it's, I mean, it seemed like it was a bit more of a, a, a New York East Coast thing, although Suicidal started to do that too when Lights, Camera, Revolution uh, came out about 1990. I mean, how much did that, I guess that album, you know, the SOD album changed sort of the landscape for that crossover sound and movement and, and influence, you know, other bands to maybe adapt more of a fun and silly approach rather than a more pissed off and, you know, cynical approach. I mean, did labels 
and studio folks, you know, like yourself, ever try to, I mean, I know you said you're more, you know, you document bands. You really didn't, you know, encourage them a lot what to do, but were they sort of, you know, encouraged me by the labels and so forth since that, you know, that sound of, I should say that those lyrics and that approach definitely had more of a mainstream appeal. It would be easier to sort of get on an MTV and a radio because it wasn't angry and host, you know, hostile and, you know, it was more listener friendly. I mean, in fact, Scatterbrain, in fact, that's what happened to them. They were all over MTV and a lot of those uh, video music channels for a while. I think it was because they adapted more of that fun style. Talk a little bit about that point in time when those bands were starting to get a little goofy and silly with their lyrics. Well, let me just say first that Ludacris is one of the favorite records that I ever made. Uh, I love that record. When I tell people who don't know anything about metal or anything about punk, you know, uh, who don't know anything about that era and sure. I want to play them something that I recorded, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll throw on most people are dicks and say, here's, nice. here's something Hell I did. Yeah. This is really good, you know, yeah. and, uh-huh. and it still is. It is the, it was just the album was brilliant. Those guys mm-hmm. were, um, also the most fun in the studio i think of any band that i ever recorded wow. we had the, we had the best time and um that was one of the best experiences i ever had so um personally i i i, I have no idea why they went with the humor thing i'm glad they did i thought it was it was great and really they were they were musically it was pretty there was a lot of metal in, in there. Uh, it was, it was pretty hard, but, um, from a, uh, personality point of view, it was really punk. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's the way I saw it. It's like, these guys were, fuck you. We're not fuck the rules. We're going to do whatever right. the fuck we want. And we don't give a shit what you think, you know? Right. And, and that's the whole, that's the, the sort of essence of punk rock is fuck you. We don't care what you think. This is what we're exactly. going to do. Mm-hmm. And they did it better than anybody, you know? And um, uh, so there, there's an album that I think it was really, really uh, underrated and, and should have been huge and wasn't, I don't understand why that record w- wasn't bigger than an, than, than it was i agree right on. yeah it's it's a great so, record i i totally agree yeah well you know one of the really more interesting things in your career is that you know this is that you've worked now on the two songs that over the years were the only i think the only songs i could think of where metallica was ever accused of of ripping off you know the first of course being dark angels you know darkness descends with lars ulrich's uh, he's been accused, obviously, of ripping off Gene Hoagland's part in that song for the Metallica song one. And then Kirk Hammett was sort of accused of ripping off the intro riff to Excel's, uh, you know, tapping into the emotional void for that main riff and intro to Enter Sandman. Now, in my opinion, the Dark Angel drum piece, I- I'm just going to leave it as I think it's pretty obvious. I do think that's a bit of a, of a steal, if you want to say that. But now, as, as the Enter Sandman riff, you know, there's some similarities to that, but overall, I think it's just one of those deals where. You know, there's just going to be riffs and parts of songs that are always going to sound like something else. And I think it's just a coincidence on that one. And we even talked to um, to Greg Sines about that last year. And he said that that whole controversy with that song was created by pretty much by the former management. They just tried to cash in a little bit on the success of Enter Sandman at the time. Uh, but as a guy who is responsible for tracking both of those songs, what's your take on both of those? I mean, because if anyone could spot the similarities and differences I would have to assume you'd you'd be the guy to to let us know in on that. Well, you know, I think I would come into the camp of that. Um, some things are just going to sound like other things, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I I can't imagine Metallica going, "Hey, here's here's a great riff. Let's let's write a song with this riff." Mm-hmm. You know, these guys have so much creativity. Why would they? It just doesn't make any sense for me mm-hmm. to go there. And it's quite possible, though, they they could have heard it and then six months later played something and not remembered that it sounded like something already. Um, mm-hmm. I heard an interview uh, a few months ago with uh, Jacob Dylan, uh, uh, okay. Bob Dylan's son. son. And Wallflowers. Wallflowers. Yeah. Wallflowers, yeah. 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 And, and they asked him about songwriting, and he said, and they asked him about a particular song. There was some song that he had written that sounded like something else. And he said, you know, 
I write a song that somebody else wrote probably every day and it goes, but I usually know it. And like, Oh, wait a minute. You know, somebody already <laughs> did that one. I can't do that one. Is that, that happens all the time. And, mm. um, you know, I think that probably happens with, with metal bands as well is that they come up with a riff and it's like, they don't realize that it's already on another record. Done it. Sure. And, or that they heard it. Mm -hmm. And, and well, it's on another record somewhere. So um, I, I don't think there was any any malice or evil or, sure. or uh, misrepresentation mm -hmm. in that. I think it was probably just an, an accident. Sure. Yeah. I, I have to imagine for you as a producer, you probably hear things that sound something like something else that you worked on all the time, no? Um, <clears throat> well, uh, yeah, at the time, yeah, a lot of the stuff did sound, uh, there, there were a lot of things that sound really similar that's true uh sure. in in those records so um i think it, i think it would be very easy for a band to accidentally do something that sounds a lot like another band certainly man mm -hmm. well yeah. well randy I, I would i would be remiss to let you go without without asking you about this one last record that of course being the grandpa death experience what can you tell me about <laughs> this what can you tell me about this record <laughs> well, it, it, it was it, Ron Gowdy, who unfortunately, the, the late Ron Gowdy, he passed away in 2020. Um, uh, Ron was Ron was the guy who came to me uh, and and said how much to do this punk record and said, I said, I need five hundred dollars this week in order to keep the studio open. Otherwise, I'm closing it down and we're moving out. Right. He said, okay, I'll give you $500 and you do my punk record. And I said, fine. So that's where I started with Ron Gowdy was, was, was hell comes to your house. And uh, we were friends for, you know, forever. Uh, sure. uh, we were, we were still friends until till the very end. And um, he was in Amsterdam. He did the record. It's, it's him and some friends in Amsterdam. And he asked me to mix one song. I mixed one of the songs. You know, uh, there are a bunch of other pretty famous guys that mix the other songs too. Sure. Uh, Gowdy did a lot of records. He knew a lot of people in the music business. So it's just, <laughs> it's just something I did for my friend, Ron. Very and, cool, and I miss him a lot. I got to tell you. Uh, I'll bet. Yeah. Ian, yeah. No question, man. Well, Randy, uh, your career is legendary and you know, I know you know that, but we'll say it anyway. Your career is absolutely yeah. legendary. I think, I think just between me and Matt alone, we probably have, we've probably built you at least a garage on your house, just in stuff <laughs> that we've bought <laughs> that your name is on, man. But wow. dude, this is, this has really been fun chatting yeah, with man. you and learning so much about these records, man. It's really good. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me just put a plug in there. Um, sure. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm back in the music business i'm okay, doing great i've got okay. uh i finally got uh, a room with proper acoustics where i can i can monitor and mix and uh uh i i just did an album i just mixed an album for a band called leather wolf um, oh, yeah. I, actually mm, recorded yeah. their, I recorded their first album in 1983 at music grinder wow and they saw something on facebook that i was mixing now and called me up and i ended up doing their album it came out great but anyway, I'm looking for bands to mix. I'm, oh, okay. I've got, I've got, uh, I've been working up to it for a number of years now. You know, learning Pro Tools and learning how to do the stuff and learning how to mix in the box, and then trying to get a monitoring situation. And I finally, finally have that together. So I'm looking for work. So I expect that there are DIY bands out there, sure, that mm -hmm. are making their own records and need somebody to mix it. I'm available. All right. Well, how do Great. how do we where do we tell them to go to get to to get to you? Uh, look me up on Facebook. Hit me up on Facebook. Look for Randy Burns producer, and um, um, they can hit me there or Randy Burns music at gmail.com. Okay. So, but they should be able to find me on Facebook, and they can DM me there. Very good. Great. Well, everybody definitely do that, especially you bands. We know we know about a million bands that listen, so hopefully some <laughs> of them will hear this and. Right. And hit you up, Randy. And and Randy, obviously, man, this has been a great pleasure, man. We we definitely appreciate the time. Absolutely. Right. Thank you very much. It's been Thanks. a pleasure. Thanks a lot, Randy. Appreciate it. When it's time to rock, it's time to tune in to Crash Course Radio. 
featuring the very best of the heavier music. From Slayer to Clutch to Fear Factory, it's all in one place, Crash Course Radio. To tune in to Crash Course Radio, simply visit www.cmsradio.net. You can also tune in on the CMS Network app by opening the app, clicking the musical notes at the top right corner, and selecting Crash Course Radio from our stations. All the best heavy music is there, so you should be too. Ditch the commercial radio and make Crash Course Radio your everyday station. <laughs>